A sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose they were scorched, and since they had no root they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who, he who hears, he who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says this is the word of God for the people of God well good morning storehouse family I hope that you are experiencing the grace of God uh, as you are gathering for worship today you are joined by Nathaniel Summers Nathaniel is a dear friend of mine he's a dear uh, church family member to you he has served on staff here at Storehouse McAllen in the past and so I hope that you are blessed by Nathaniel Summers. Well, thank you guys. <laughs> well, I am very happy to uh, be here this morning, uh, be able to preach the word, especially because we're starting a new sermon series, uh, The Parables of Jesus. And uh, this series is going to be really special, I think, over this summer. Uh, basically, the way it's going to work is we're just going to go through different parables you know, every single week, um, and it's going to be something pretty amazing. But before we get into that, I have a few different announcements, and I'm going to try to remember all of them. Uh, first, the door on the east side is going to be locked from now on. So if you try to get in, you, you can't, and nobody's going to come and help you. Go all the way around to this side, come in so that we can worship uh, safely, okay? Uh, second, happy Father's Day to all the dads. Good job, everybody. Uh, we have gifts for you in the back, and so before you leave today, go back, get something nice. Um, I'm sure it's very nice because Elsie always does a wonderful job uh, with these things. And so thank you, fathers, for being here. And thank you, fathers, for everything that you do. The things that you do each and every single day make an impact that you cannot even imagine and you won't even see for years to come. Um, but your kids are watching and they value everything that you do, dads. So thank you, fathers. Uh, and then... <laughs> 
I had another one. Oh, yes. So Parables of Jesus, this sermon series, we actually have a devotional book just like we did last year for Ruth. And so it will be available, just not this week. So you have to come back next week and uh, grab it from the back from Connect uh, or wherever they end up putting it. Uh, but those will be available next week. And those are just short devotionals, just like what Ruth was, to kind of guide us through this summer so that you in your own time throughout the week are able to continue worshiping with us uh, from the sermon series. And so I believe those are all of our uh, announcements. And so... Uh, Today, we are in Matthew 13, Parable of the Sower, and that's going to be our opening parable for this series. And so I would encourage you to open or load your Bibles to get to Matthew 13, uh, because Efrain, you did a great job reading it, and so I'm not going to read through it all again, but we're going to be getting back to different passages uh, within this entire chapter, and so I encourage you, have your Bibles open so that you can follow along, bounce back and forth, because I'm going to be doing a little bit of that, uh, and see exactly, you know, what I'm saying is actually in there, okay? Uh, and so please get your Bibles open, uh, and we'll get ready to go. But let me open in prayer, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, I thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for how you love us and teach us so that we may know you, understand you, know your heart, be able to live a life that honors you. You don't leave us in the dark, but rather you illuminate the way forward for us. And the parables are a way that you do that. And so thank you. Thank you for them. And thank you that you have given your word freely to us so that we may always study it and know it, internalize it, Lord, you speak to us through it. We are grateful and we are excited to be able to be in your word uh, today and every single day. In your holy name, amen. So the parables are uh, tricky a little bit because they're confusing sometimes. And so to try to explain exactly what parables do, I have just a, a little bit of an example. Has anyone ever uh, been a performer on a stage, whether it's like, you know, choir or band or musicals. I see Jocelyn over there, something like that, I'm sure. And so anything like that, we've been on stage. And I have a little secret. Uh, I actually was in show choir when I was in high school. The sequin vest, jazz hands, <laughs> all of it. So there is no videos. Actually, there is, but don't go looking for it. Um, but... Yeah, that was a part of my high school, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, but when you're on stage, when you're doing any kind of performance, stage lights are a part of that. I mean, we use them here. I, there's some on me right now. Stage lights are just a part of performance. Now, a stage light, though, has kind of a different impact on different people depending on where they are within the theater. And so for the audience, for everyone who's looking up at the stage, the stage light draws their gaze to the place it's supposed to go. It illuminates the way the show is going, the performance, and, and what they're supposed to be looking at. And so it helps guide the audience, and it's very obvious to everyone sitting in the seats exactly what's happening and what it's supposed to do. And it actually adds a deeper element to the performance. Now, for those who are on stage, to the actors, to the performers, whatever, uh, the stage lights are just kind of a part of it. 
after a while, an experienced you know, actor doesn't even notice that the lights are on them. And maybe an inexperienced actor may be blinded you know, for a moment. They, they don't quite you know, expect it to come on them. But then they move on and they quickly forget about it. Parables are very much like stage lights. You know, to the actors, to those who are up here, uh, it, it doesn't really make an impact. And for parables, some people are going to hear, and it doesn't make an impact. They just kind of blow right through it. It doesn't make any sense to them. And it doesn't last longer than the story itself. Or it may, you know, momentarily daze them or stir them, but then they move on and forget that it's there. But to the audience, to those who it's intended for, a parable leads to deeper understanding and illumination of the truth that is being taught. That's what parables are and what they do for us. So this series on, a parab- on the parables of Jesus, we have a perfect beginning in Matthew 13 because Jesus very clearly tells us why he uses parables. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to start in that middle section of this chapter before we actually get into the parable of the sower. Because the disciples are asking, what's the purpose of this? Why do you speak in these parables, in these stories? Why don't you just speak plainly? They want to know. We want to know. Because doesn't it make sense just to say what you mean to say? Right? So they ask, why, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus replies, there's a purpose. There is a purpose for parables. And that purpose really comes down to Some understand, and some do not. In verse 11, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. God does this on purpose. Some understand and some do not. And that is the way it's going to be. It's the way it's intended to be. It's always been the plan. Isaiah prophesied it, as you can see in front of you. Israel lived it, a people set apart. They lived lives different from their neighbors. For what purpose? Because they understood and they did not. And Jesus, he declares it in his ministry. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way. And some understand, and some do not. Not everyone is going to understand. Only through Jesus is the truth of the gospel revealed. And the parables are a very real example of how some are blind to the truth, whether for a portion of their lives or, unfortunately, for their entire lives. But by God's grace, some do understand. And it's only by his grace. Without God's grace, none of us would understand. But this is a very real truth, that some 
see and some hear and some do not. And I can attest to this. My own conversion experience, my own time when I came to know God speaks very clearly to this. See, I grew up in the church. I knew all the stories. My parents are faithful believers, have been my whole life, and they're awesome. But I had no relationship with God when I was in you know, grade school and high school, going into university. None. I knew it all, and I, and I would even say I believed. I believed it was real to an extent. I believed God was real. I was probably more agnostic than anything, you know, that God's real, but he doesn't really have much interaction with us. And I was in my dorm room one night working on a homework assignment my freshman year. And the homework assignment was from a creative writing class. And the prompt was, what is your identity? And I had no clue how to answer that. I was sitting there trying to type this paper, and I didn't know where to go. See, I had always put my identity in what I could do, my achievements, the things I could accomplish, my skills as an athlete. And I was sitting in that dorm room in the middle of physical therapy, a very long season of physical therapy that had blown out my knee at the end of high school. And so all of a sudden, uh, I wasn't a soccer player anymore. I couldn't run like I used to. Couldn't even work out without pain. The things that I had staked my identity in, gone. So I'm sitting there, and I have no clue what I'm supposed to write for this. And I didn't go to scripture. I didn't open up the Bible. I don't even know where my Bible was at the time. But all of a sudden, sitting there at the computer, all the things my parents taught me, the things my dad taught me, the things I had heard, you know, every single Sunday that I was there in church. All these things came flooding back. I started remembering the things they said. How my dad always said, you know, you're my son, but first and foremost, you're a son of God. How he taught me, how my mother showed love and mercy and compassion to me and to others in her life. And I remembered the things they said. And even though I had heard them over and over and over my entire life, in a moment, I understood. In a moment, it made sense to me for the first time. No new information. Nothing at all other than a blank computer screen in front of me. And yet my eyes were opened, and as it says here, I could see, I could hear, I could understand. Before, I had seen, but I could not see. I had heard, but I did not hear. And then God opened my eyes and my ears, and I understood. This truth that the parables represent, that some see and some do not, some hear and some do not, is a reality. And it is by God's grace that those moments come where understanding is presented. But I ask you, how did that come about in my own story? It was through the faithfulness of my father and my mother. Christian, it is the faithfulness of you in your life as you share the gospel with those around you, as you live out the gospel. That's how God opens people's eyes and opens their ears so they can understand. That's why Jesus taught in parables. 
because he was presenting truth. And maybe he had to do it over and over and over and over. But that's how God's grace works. Because not everyone's going to understand, but you might be the catalyst in which God uses his grace so that they may. In verse 16, it says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. For those of us who do hear, do understand, celebrate. It is something that the entire world craves, whether they know it or not. And so celebrate the grace that God has poured upon you. But why not speak plainly? That's really what the disciples are saying then. Because even in this passage, in this chapter, we see that he presents the parable to the crowds, and then they go away, and he explains it later in chapter 13. He tells the disciples plainly what it is. So why not just speak plainly all the time? Why not plainly for everyone? See, some understand and some do not, and that is kind of the general big picture message that we get from the parables. But there's also something here special for those of us who do understand. For those of us who do understand, parables lead us to a deeper understanding and internalization of truth, which results in transformation Let me say that again. Parables for the Christian, for the believer, parables lead us to a deeper understanding and internalization of truth, which results in transformation within our lives. If you have ever taught anybody or been a teacher, you know that if you just stand up there and give the answers to the test, Does the kid actually learn any of that? Or do they just memorize what they need to know for the test? But if you actually guide the child through the process, through the equation, through the the facts that go into the historical events, if you guide the kid to the answer, they understand. They know what it actually means, and they're going to be able to take that test and come to the answer on their own. And they will understand it and know it and build upon it for their future education. That's what the parables do for us. Jesus doesn't want to just give us the answer. He says, if your ears can hear and your eyes can see, you will understand. And because I teach to you in parables, you are going to internalize this. Understand it. The truth will take on a deeper meaning for you and your lives are going to be transformed by it. That's why he speaks in parables. That's why parables are so special. Even now to us, as we study it in his word, these parables are going to do something radical within your life if you can just hear. If you can open your heart to what it has to teach us. 
And so that's going to be my question for you, not just for today, though definitely for today, but for the rest of this series. I want you to ask yourself over and over, do I hear? Because even if you are a believer and you do understand and God has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel, we uh, have a tendency to plug our ears back up. We want to put you know, some cotton swabs in there so that we don't have to hear the hard truths of Scripture. We don't have to be challenged or rebuked. We don't have to change. And so whether you're a believer or not today, I want you to ask yourself, do I hear? As we go through this parable, the parable of the sower, and we start learning lessons from this, can you hear the truth that is coming from the pages of Scripture? Can the Holy Spirit convict your heart about the sin that you are in and you actually listen? Do you hear? Every single week as we go through each parable, there's going to be new insight gained, new opportunities to mature and to grow. But do you hear? So keep that question in mind as we go on today, but throughout the next several weeks as we are in this entire series. Do you hear? Is your heart fertile ground for the gospel to not only take root for the first time, but to continue to grow and to flourish throughout the rest of your life, including today in this moment? Do you hear? The parable of the sower is a very challenging parable as we get into it. Make no mistake, the state of your heart is is what this parable is about. The state of your heart. Today, the text is going to require each and every single one of us to examine our hearts and where they're at. From a more general pulled out view, this parable, the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, is about the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth and how the gospel grows or fails to take root in the hearts of various people it comes into contact with. And Jesus explains this by presenting four types of hearts and explaining how the gospel is going to be reacted to by them. And so that's what we're going to do too. We're going to go through each type of heart. But the first three out of the four represent those who do not know God. And the fourth is the only one in which the gospel truly takes root. And so like I said, it's going to be a challenging parable because three quarters of the rest of our time together is going to be speaking directly to a heart that is rejecting God. And Christian, let me tell you, your heart may be more like one of those than you would like to admit right now. There may be things that I say that are going to challenge you. Things that are going to start breaking down some idols that you have built up 
in your heart. And so I recognize this is rough. I recognize this is challenging, and I recognize that it may be a sermon in which you start to bristle because you might feel attacked. I'm sorry about that, but I'm, I'm not really. Um, <laughs> but I don't want you to bristle. I don't want you to feel challenged or even really rebuked. I don't want you to grow defensive as we go through these types of hearts. Because, yeah, it, it might feel, you know, for three quarters of the rest of the way, it might feel like I keep just kind of hammering and pounding in some of these things that you're just messing up. But I'm just presenting the hearts that Christ did. And so one thing that I'm going to do, because God's heart is one of mercy and compassion before judgment. So one thing I'm going to do is I'm actually going to walk through this with you by sharing a personal failure of mine for each and every single heart. And I pray that for you, even if you feel challenged or you want to grow defensive or maybe even fall into despair because you realize your sin, I want you to know you are not alone. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were furthest away from his heart, he died for you. Do you really think he's going to walk away now that you're his? Yes, we might mess up. We're going to fail in different ways. I have failed in many ways. But the heart of God is no further from you than if you were the most holy person in the world. And so this is going to be challenging. This is going to be rough. It has been for me over the last several days. But let this be not a place where we grow defensive or fall into despair. But let this be a time where we rejoice that our sins and our hearts are laid bare before us so that we may repent and be led to a deeper relationship with God and to mature in our faith. That is my prayer. But to do that, you're going to have to actually examine your hearts. And so once again, I ask, do you hear? Can you hear right now? And I pray that answer is yes. And if it's not a yes right now, I pray by the end of today that it will be. And so let's jump into the four types of hearts. Number one, a bewitched heart. The first type that Jesus presents to us within this parable. In verse four, it says, And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And then we jump to his explanation in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The imagery here is rather beautiful, actually, because a path is a beaten down patch of dirt. 
trod upon by many feet. It's hard. It's compact. You put something on it, there's no place for it to go. It just sits there. And so one thing that scripture uses often is the imagery of birds of the air to represent the evil one, Satan, temptation, sin. And so what we see here is him, even in the parable itself, before we even get to his explanation, he's pretty plainly in the common you know, speech of the day saying, man, this falls down here and immediately the evil one comes and takes it away. Not even an opportunity for that heart to even sense the gospel upon it. But why does this happen? Why is a heart like this not able to really embrace the gospel or even hear that it's there, know that it's there? It's because it's a heart that is blinded and bewitched by sin. It's a heart that loves sin so much that it cannot see beyond it. At our core, we love sin, all of us. If we didn't, then uh, it wouldn't be a problem, would it? You wouldn't have any temptation. But we, we like sin. We like certain things that we know is not good for us. And those who do not know God, whose eyes have not been opened and his grace has not poured upon them so that they can understand, their hearts cannot even imagine a world without sin. They're bewitched by it. So their hearts are completely closed off. And this heart cannot be a believer. It's usually rather obvious. These individuals want nothing to do with Jesus. They want nothing to do with the gospel because any truth coming from it just bounces right off. There's nothing that can be done except by God's grace to open their eyes. But it is a heart that is bewitched by sin, one that loves it. But Christian... I want to warn you that you may be dabbling in this kind of heart. I use the term bewitched, a bewitched heart, because it invokes imagery of, you know, like a witch casting a spell. And even though that we may have our eyes opened and be free, that sin has no hold over us anymore, no No sin can keep you under its spell by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet sometimes we let it because we still like our sin. And so sometimes we just let it do its thing. Jesus Christ breaks the chains of our slavery to sin and yet we, uh, every once in a while within our lives, walk over and start picking up some that we enjoy and putting them right back on. They're not even locked. We just like to put them on. We become bewitched by our sin again. And it's even worse for us. The non-believer, the person who their eyes have not been opened, they don't know any better. Their hearts are so hard, they don't even know the gospel's there. For us, we know the gospel. We know the truth. We actually have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, and we still choose to be enslaved by our sin. 
it is so much worse when that happens than any non-believer who doesn't know God at all. And so for me, my example for this is you might find yourself in this position right now. You may be thinking of that one thing, that one sin that you just keep going back to. You're not alone. For me, when I was a young believer, I was addicted to pornography and I was addicted to a dating lifestyle that did not honor God at all. And the purpose for me was that I enjoyed the self-gratification. I enjoyed being able to date and be able to know that I could seduce women, that I could, you know, kind of get whatever I wanted out of these relationships or even just going to pornography. I liked the control that I had of it. And even as a young Christian, this was in the first couple of years of being a believer, I knew it was not only sinful, but I knew it was destructive. I had seen how my behavior and my attitude had not only destroyed you know, good relationships within my life, but had also left a trail of women behind me where we had completely broken relationships because I treated them so poorly. And for a long time, I'll be honest, even the idea, because I've lived here in the valley for uh, eight years now, but even the idea for a long time of going back home to where people knew me before I was a Christian terrified me because I knew what kind of man I was. And the truth is, it wasn't all before I was a Christian. Some of it happened after I was. Because even though I was free from my sin and I knew that it was not good for me and it wasn't good for anyone else, I allowed myself to continue being enraptured by it. And I just kept coming back to it for years. You may be in a place where you are bewitched by some sin. I don't know what it may be for you. Maybe the same as me, maybe some kind of sexual sin. Maybe your anger, your impatience, your frustration, your bitterness. I don't know. But if you are bewitched by sin, if you, had allow, if you have allowed it to capture your heart and you just don't want to let go of it, first, you're not alone. And second, that is not God's plan for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross so we can have freedom. There is no sin that is more beautiful than him. And so if that is you and there's some sin that has captured your heart, man, I pray that you just release it. Let it go. Because there is a fuller life in Christ awaiting for you that he wants for you. But along with that, be warned, Christian, that if you allow sin to bewitch your heart, you are not only damaging yourself and your relationship with God, 
You are damaging the church and believers all around you. One of the big reasons why I was not a believer when I was a kid is because I saw Christians who proclaimed Christ and lived completely opposite of it. Do not be that Christian that pushes people away from the gospel because you have chosen to allow sin to bewitch you. Bewitched heart is the first kind. And once again, I ask you, do you hear? Number two, the next kind of heart that he presents us is a shallow heart. Verse five, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they have no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. And his explanation in verse 20 and 21, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. A shallow heart. This is a heart that floats from one philosophy, one ideology, one happy occurrence to the next. Because that shallow heart is just looking for what makes me feel good. That's all this heart is looking for. Pleasure in the moment. What's going to make me feel happy right now? And so this heart is swayed by ideology, swayed by movements, by charismatic leaders, preachers, or cult leaders. They're just looking for something to belong to, but they have no true conviction of their own, no real beliefs. They just follow one thing to the next because they're looking just to feel good. No real identity within a shallow heart. And this kind of heart hides in Christianity really, really well. This kind of heart is your classic cultural Christian. So a cultural Christian, with a little c, is an individual who is not a believer. They don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. But they grew up in the church. They've attended church every single week, still do. They go to the things. Up north, they would go to the potlucks. Down here, they go to the barbecues. They're a Christian who knows what to say, what to do, what to, you know, act like, how to behave, believe that morality is an important thing, that community is super special and important, and they're probably really active in it because they get good feelings from being a part of something. They get the, the positive energy from a worship service. They love the music, the band. They love all of this aspects, all the aspects of Christianity because they're connected and it makes them feel something. They feel good. Feels like the right thing to do even. But hard times come. The preacher says something that convicts them or pushes them start feeling uncomfortable. All right, I'm going to bounce. I'm going to go to this church over here. They go to the next church. And they feel good, and they feel like, oh, this, this is so encouraging. I love these people. I love all this stuff. And then they get challenged. Hop to the next one. 
They start hopping from church to church looking for something that just makes them feel good in the moment and when times get tough or the gospel becomes too real and they start getting a glimpse of reality, they got to bounce because they're just looking to feel good. They're just shallow, just shallow hearts. And unfortunately, we see them end up at like Joel Olstein's church where they just feel good all the time, but there's no truth. These are cultural Christians, individuals in this country, in this world who claim Christianity, claim to know Christ, and they have no relationship, no depth to them. Is this you? Because you don't have to church hop to be this person. You might stay in the same church and just decide to ignore the parts that make you uncomfortable. But you feel connected with people. You have your friends and your relationships here. Maybe you've been to Storehouse our entire existence for five years. Maybe you were at Logos before that. And so you just have deep roots in this church community. But you don't actually know the gospel. And you don't want to. You just like how it makes you feel. Is that you? Do you hear? So for me, I sinned in this way also. There was a period of time <clears throat> when I was a young believer. It was maybe my second year as a Christian. I was still trying to figure out like uh, where I belonged in terms of a church. You know, I was at university. I was a young Christian, didn't kind of know what was going on. Um, and there's this super charismatic church near campus. And so I started going. And as a young Christian, I understood the truths of the gospel, but I had no practical experience or maturity in a lot of these areas. So I was just looking for something that felt real. And going to this charismatic church that I now know had rather shallow teaching, but going to the super charismatic church made me feel good made me, you know, have that spiritual high after the services. It, it got me excited, but I, I didn't actually grow at all. I didn't know Jesus more in any way. I just went purely so that I could feel good about myself and feel like, all right, now I'm an actual Christian because I'm going to church faithfully, you know, for the first time since I started going to college. But the whole experience was sinful on my part because I really didn't care to know God more. I literally found the place that made me feel good. And what happened is we had a service where a missionary actually came in, was speaking, and he challenged me in his service, in that sermon, and I bounced. Never went back. <laughs> Even a super shallow church like that, and I still couldn't last. Praise God, I had some friends who were able to kind of guide me along the way, but I wanted to just feel connected 
to feel good about myself. And if that's what your identity is as a Christian, man, you may not know God at all. Is this you? Do you hear? The third kind of heart that Christ presents us is a self-absorbed heart. Verse 7, other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22, his explanation, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is an individual, a self-absorbed heart, an individual who maybe knows the gospel and maybe actually believes it, believes it to be true, knows that obedience and what it entails is the way to honor God. And they simply don't care because their heart is so focused inward upon themselves. It's a heart that is absorbed with their own needs and desires. This heart pursues the best life for itself. Might even, by all accounts, be a fairly good person a rather moral person, but it's all about them. Their morality, their ethics, their behavior achieves a need for them. They get something out of it. It's not to honor God. It's so that they get something, whether it's prestige or power or authority or standing within the community. While a shallow heart has no convictions of their own, this kind of heart has all the convictions in the world. They're firm. They know what they believe. They know what they want. They have many beliefs and convictions that they hold on to. But it doesn't stop with their convictions because their convictions carry into, uh, it's all about me and my convictions, not yours. It's about me and my money, not yours. And I have to make sure I have more of it. I have to make sure I have more control. I have to have more sovereignty over my life. And anything that encroaches upon that is going to be something that I must defeat. Which, spoiler, God has sovereignty over our lives. And so this heart automatically butts heads with God. But I will be honest as well that this heart hides within the church really well too. There are many self-absorbed hearts within the church today. These are cultural Christians, like we just talked about, cultural Christians that warp the gospel for their own use. They do the right things, say the right things, possibly even preach the right kind of sermons to gather power for themselves. False teachers which scripture spends a lot of time talking about. These are false teachers, power-hungry preachers, cash-grab religion, things that unfortunately, as we all know, have deep roots within Christianity, especially here in America. A self-absorbed heart hides in plain sight. 
It uses religion to control others. This can be abusive individuals. Those who use certain passages of Scripture to justify their control over their spouse, to justify the way that they manage their home, the power that they feel they're owed because they pick and choose from Scripture certain things and misrepresent what it actually means. They're using religion to control. These are individuals who deny many parts of the Bible, like we just said, in favor of parts they like, and use Scripture to justify not just abuse and control, but some pretty counter-gospel ideologies. Thomas Jefferson, he, uh, he was a Christian, quote-unquote, uh, who had his own Bible because he had some problems with parts of it. And so what he did was he just actually literally took scissors and cut out the parts he didn't really uh, think were correct. And so he ended up with his own Bible, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, which is in a museum somewhere, and it's 87 pages. That's it. <laughs> But if you ask Thomas Jefferson, if he was alive and you asked, are you a Christian? You follow God? He was like, yes. Yes, I am. Matter of fact, I think I understand him better than most. But what he did is he cut out anything that would contradict the way that he viewed the world. All miracles were cut out. All mention of the divine Anything that suggested or outright said that Jesus was God, gone. He needed Scripture to fit what he believed was true, not actually see what truth actually was. And we may not do that. You, I, I hope you don't have a cut-up Bible at home. But we still kind of do it. Parts of scripture that are difficult that we don't understand maybe or kind of go against what we have been raised to believe, the ideologies we hold outside of faith. And we see something in scripture that is counter to it. We'll just ignore that one. We won't deal with it. This is expressed within our culture by saying this is sin and this is not sin, even though in scripture it says it is a sin. Ah, but actually it means, and so this isn't a sin. Happens all the time, unfortunately, in major denominations. This is extremist groups. I mean, white supremacy is one of the big ones right now that is using scripture to justify their behavior. And in case you didn't know, that's extremely sinful, and white supremacy has no place within the halls of Christendom. And yet, how many churches do we see around the United States in the news that seem to have ties and support? And it's not just white supremacy. It's all kinds of extremist groups, ideologies that push an agenda that has nothing to do with the gospel, and yet they use scripture to try to justify it. I mean, we even can go back to the history of the American church and see that for a portion of time, and not even a small one, a very big one, the church was one of the biggest groups to justify slavery. A practice that is 
basically outright condemned by Paul. And yet they pick just a couple of verses and say, see, this benefits me, and so I know that it must be true. The rest of Scripture be damned. Do not be that Christian. I don't care if it's a big thing like that or if it's a tiny thing where you just want to justify your behavior towards your coworker. You just want to justify feeling like you're superior from a non-believer. I don't care what it is. Do not be that Christian. Because the damage you do is not just around you. You are damaging the gospel and the church, the bride of Christ. One of the habits that I have begun over the past several years is going on to social media intentionally to see what people say about Christians. And it's these kinds of people that are convincing the world that Christ is hateful, that Christ is judgmental, that he pushes people away and would rather see death than life. People truly believe this because of these kind of Christians. Christians. We must guard our hearts from becoming self-absorbed. We must guard the church from allowing these individuals to hold power and sway over it. Is this you in any way? Can you hear the truth that Jesus tells us? And I told you I'd give you an example for all of them for myself, and I have one. <laughs> I have sinned in this way. When Nicole and I first got married, one thing, I don't even know why it was such a big deal for me. But one thing that I really had a hard time letting go of was finances. The world had taught me that the man controls the checkbook. I have to make sure I, you know, I'm the one setting the budget. I'm the one controlling these things. I have to make more money than Nicole does. And it bothered me when I could not have control over these things. And, I mean, if any of you know Nicole, she does not let me have control if she doesn't want me to. And so this was a problem. <laughs> and not only that, I'm not even a numbers guy. I mean, I'm not good at it. <laughs> And so we had this conflict within our marriage right at the beginning over finances purely because I thought that I had to have control. That it was my right to control this part of our lives. And it wasn't really malicious, but yet it was sinful. There was nothing against Nicole, and it was still wrong. 
And I had to repent of that. And praise God, I had the wisdom at some point to be like, all right, babe, you do all the finances. Just tell me how much I can treat myself with. (laughs) And so Nicole does. She does all of our finances, all of our budget stuff, all the money. But I failed because I was so self-absorbed. I wanted control. I wanted to be about me. Don't let your heart become self-absorbed. Do you hear? All right, those three uh, hearts suck. And so (laughs) thankfully we get to move on now. The number four, the last heart, a fruitful heart. This is a heart that loves God. In verse eight, Jesus describes it as other seeds fell on good soil and they produced grain, some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. He explains it in 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and he yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. To understand this well, I'm going to quickly teach you a little bit about uh, farming because I'm a country white kid from the Midwest and I know all about it. (laughs) There's something called loamy soil. You probably never heard of it. That's okay. You don't need to. But loamy soil is the best kind. It's a perfect mix between clay, silt, sand all together, perfectly combined, so you get the best of all of it. Perfect for nutrients, perfect for water, perfect for uh, plants to be able to grow and the roots to go deep. Loamy soil. Because if you have too much clay, it's too hard. You have too much sand and the soil becomes too loose like we have here in the valley. Too much silt and the soil is just inhospitable. No nutrients. Our hearts can have too much of something in it. But when our hearts are loamy soil, it's perfect. Ready for the gospel. Ready for the truths that we read in scripture in our morning coffee time to sink in. To grow. For the roots to grow deep within us. And... My example, which this one I'm much more happy to share. (laughs) From my own life, one thing that I have seen, and this is an example that spans my entire walk with God, but one thing I've seen every single year is that my heart grows to love and to yearn for the gospel more and more and more. At some point, even though I resisted and I pushed back and I failed again and again and I still continue to fail, somehow God has made my heart that was rocky and thorny and just too difficult, he made it loamy soil. And the gospel took root and its roots have just been permeating throughout me. 
And now I'm at a point where even though I mess up and I still fail in many ways, and I will be honest with you about that if you want, but yet I yearn for God in a way I never have. And I know that tomorrow I'm going to love him more. And the next day even more. God is my everything. A fruitful heart is not only one where you can understand perfectly, but it is one in which the richness of the gospel is perfectly encaptured. It is one where you can enjoy God, not just know the truth about him, but actually be in relationship with him, where you can enjoy and know the deepness of his heart. A heart that, as it says in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, it is first and foremost one of mercy and compassion and grace. Judgment is a part of who God is, but it is only to a minor, small degree to how much he has compassion for you. When you know God's heart, when you are able to understand and to hear the truth that he has for you, it not only radically will change and transform you, it's going to capture your heart in a way that you never expected, in a way that you can never even express with adequate words. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. I often have people ask, how, how do I evangelize? How do I share the gospel with my friends and family and coworkers? How, how am I supposed to do something like that? It's terrifying. And it is. It is scary to do so. But if your heart has the gospel rooted within it, and it is fertile ground to hear the truths of scripture, then God is continuously pouring into you and you just love him so much that the fear is just going to be a background noise. You don't even have to think about it at that point because you're going to evangelize. You're going to share the gospel because he's the best thing in your life. If you can talk about your sports team, you can talk about God. If you can talk about your hobbies, you can talk about God. Because as much as you may love those things, if you truly know God's heart, you know how it's infinitely better. In addition to that, a fruitful heart is evidenced by change. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And this is that piece about a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold that he mentions. What was that supposed to mean? It means that the levels of maturity is a very real thing. Christian, you may know God, and you may love him, and you may want to live in obedience to him, but you have found yourself not really wanting to go deeper, 
Not wanting God to capture more of your heart. You don't want to, you know, let go of this particular sin or this particular thing. And even though you are a believer, you're going to produce only 30-fold. Because your focus is not fully on him. And you may die that way. Where you never commit everything to God. And so you just, uh, your yield, your fruitfulness is just less. Not all Christians live the same life. There are levels of fruitfulness. It's just a reality. Same salvation, different amounts of change happening. Different amounts of pleasure that God has for you. Not that he loves more or less an individual. But when we live in obedience and we have fruitfulness in our lives, God is pleased. And if you truly love him, if you truly want to live your life completely for him, then don't you want to please him the most? Don't you want to yield as much fruit as you possibly can? Your maturity is going to determine your fruitfulness. And some of us need to stop drinking milk and start eating some meat. Stop going to the feel-good verses. Tackle the hard ones. Spend a week trying to understand the whole doctrine of total depravity. I don't know. Do something. Go deeper. And the way that we mature, I'll just give you a few things really quick. Because these aren't new. These really aren't. I don't really need to even explain pretty much all of them. Confess. Repent. Some of you like to think if you do it in your head that it's actually working. Well, you're not actually confessing anything. You're just acknowledging that you messed up. Confess and then repent with other people. Have a brother or sister that you talk to and actually confess your sin and then turn away from it. And that happens through community. Be in community. Do not put yourself in your room and think that just because you, know, you worked hard that day at work that you deserve to chill and watch Netflix for the next eight hours and then go do it again. You don't have any community. You're not growing. Be in community, people. It's not that hard. Go grab coffee with someone. Your disciplines, your spiritual disciplines. Read your Bible. Know what it says. Pray. Practice journaling, solitude. There are so many different kinds of spiritual disciplines you could practice, and I guarantee there's something for each and every single one of us. For me, I am not the person that's going to sit in you know, my prayer closet and just you know, pray for hours, but I am going to go and I'm going to run three miles and pray the entire time. That's what I do. That's how I pray. I don't know what it is for you, but you better get some disciplines and actually do them. That's how you're going to mature. Your faithfulness. That means when you got a discipline, whether it's going for a run and, and praying or, or journaling, or maybe it, for you it's drawing the truths that you read in Scripture, whatever that discipline is, actually do it over and over and over and 
just keep doing it. Don't do it once and be like, I'm good for 90 days, and then I'll try again. That's not how it works. Be faithful. Then lastly, perseverance. Even Paul says one of the greatest marks of a Christian life is perseverance. What's that mean? That means if you're a Christian today, in 20 years, man, I pray that you are a Christian still. That you're still following God and you want him. And if I see that, man, that speaks a lot. There's some believers in here who have run a good race, and they're not even done yet. Looking at you, Gary. <laughs> Men like Gary, women like Anne, these two inspire. They have persevered through time, hardship. Their example to us. Man, that's what we should all strive for. Perseverance. Keep going. Even when it's tough, don't be a shallow heart. Persevere. So examine your heart, people. That's it. Examine it. Know your heart. Are you maturing? Are you dabbling in some of these other hearts that really you should not be? Are you more mature than you were last year? Have you grown in your faith? We talked about a bewitched heart, one that's captured by sin. Are you bewitched by the gospel? Does it capture your attention? Does it snare you with its immeasurable goodness? Either for the first time today, never has before, or for the thousandth time. Is the gospel special? Because let me tell you the truth and then we will be done. But the truth is that the gospel is beautiful. The heart of God is beautiful. Do you yearn for God? Do you hear? God loves you so much, whether you do or not. God loves you so much that he entered into human history and Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a gruesome death to pay for your sin. Do you hear? Jesus died, but death did not win. Jesus rose from the dead three days later and appeared to many, proving his victory and claiming his place as the Son of God. Do you hear? Jesus ascended into heaven, and he lives alive today at the right hand of the Father, interceding and advocating for you and I every single day and every single moment. Do you hear? He assures us of our salvation. He convicts us of our sin through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and empowers us to live a life that can be holy. Do you hear? No sin holds power over you. No circumstance, no tragedy, nothing that can happen to you or around you influences who you are because you are a son or daughter of God. Do you hear? Let me tell you, church, 
storehouse, Christian or individual who doesn't know God, you are loved, delivered. You can be adopted, sanctified, and desired by God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you hear? Let us pray. Lord, I am so in love with you. I cannot express how how good you have been in my own life. And Father, I just pray that every single person in this place, every single person who may be listening, grows to love you just a little bit more. That we continue to take these steps on this journey throughout our life as we know you and we love you and we mature in our faith as we are able to be closer to you. And we have an eternity that we are looking forward to in which we really have no idea what it's even going to be like because it's going to be so wonderful and glorious. And yet, even now in this time, our hearts can be so in love with you without even seeing what it's going to be like then. Father, I want to love you more. As much as I think I love you with everything I have, I know there's more to give. I fail you constantly. I know I do. I repent of my sin. I, I confess my failings. Father, draw me closer to you. And I ask that every person in this place wants the same. Wants you more. Because that's what it's all about. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, that you are good. In your holy name, amen.